0: Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder and partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with two very special guests. Uh, back by popular demand, partner, Village Global, Ross Fabini, uh, and then portfolio CEO uh, and co-founder of Ossium Kevin Caldwell. Guys, yeah. welcome to the podcast. Hey, yeah. um, Kevin, what is Ossium, and how did you come to start it?
1: So Ossium Health is building a bank of bone marrow derived from deceased organ and tissue donors for transplant. So bone marrow transplants, have been around for about 60 years. We usually think of stem cell therapies as 21st century medicine. For the most part, that's true. But the oldest type of stem cell therapy has been done a million times around the world and actually is a pretty well established medical procedure. The thing is that, um, historically, we've used bone marrow transplants for a pretty limited number of things. There are about 20,000 people in the U.S. every year who are diagnosed with uh, blood cancers like leukemia and many of these, and and go searching for a matching bone marrow donor because of that. Um, The thing is that there's actually about 125,000 people around the US who are diagnosed with diseases that in principle are treatable by bone marrow transplant. Um, The vast majority of those indications that people have, we never go looking for a matching donor for because there's such an incredible shortage of it. So OSEM is working on ending that shortage so that more people can access the procedure.
0: And Kevin, you you were at Bridgewater before.
1: That's true. I was, yeah. Uh, so, while, <laughs> so this is basically the same thing. Bone
0: uh,
2: marrow hedge fund, same, same jam, same yeah, jam. pretty
0: much. How did you get from A to B, or w- what's your story?
1: Well, so I am um, in in many ways. I found um, the work that I did at Bridgewater I- incredibly interesting. Um, at a sort of global macro hedge fund, the economy of the entire world, essentially was sort of within the purview of things that we sought to understand and kind of the full bubbling up of, of human activity and all these transactions compiling into things that in the big picture sort of drove the sort of growth of nations it was like incredibly interesting to be modeling and actually making decisions on like actual bets at the largest hedge fund in the world. Um, and so that was was awesome. But then like you do it for long enough and you stop thinking about, well, how how interesting, how intellectually stimulating is the work? And you start thinking more and more about like how meaningful is it? And so I, um, and this has nothing to do with Bridgewater. This is a career in, in, for me, a career as a, like a, and it's like a public markets sort of hedge fund investor in general. Um, I thought to myself, well, imagine that I'm 90 years old and I'm looking back at my life and my career. And I've spent that whole time taking, you know, wealth from very wealthy institutions and individuals and making them even richer. Like, is that. Is that who I would want to have been? And I thought, okay, like probably not. Right. Um, and so then I thought, well, what, what would be more meaningful? You're making us
0: feel bad, Kevin. I, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> not you cool? Like, having a conversation
2: with yourself or your deathbed. You're on the top of a mountain that you flew to in your own helicopter. You know? Yeah. <laughs> you coffin made of gold. I mean, I'm just saying. Yeah, now, Kevin, you ought to
0: a roll. Yeah, as you were.
1: <clears throat> um. And so I thought, well, okay, well, what would be more meaningful to me? And one of the... So I believe that in every... Age in history, there's one field of technology that drives almost all innovation. We went from like horse-drawn carriages to the Apollo program in a little bit over a century, like mechanical and chemical engineering transforming the way we move. In the 50 years since the Apollo program, it's really been computerization and all things related to it have changed the world. And I believe that for the next 50 years, I think the thing that's gonna define the 21st century is biotechnology. Like the very definition of what humanity is, we're gonna have a better understanding of the actual mechanisms of, not just the the sort of philosophy of it or the personal experience of it, but like how we work fundamentally. And I think that's going to change everything. And so I think there's something to be said for working in the field of your time in terms of maximizing impact and value. Um, And then for me personally, I spent a lot of time as a kid with my grandparents and I saw them go in and out of the healthcare system. And As far as, you know, at like 11 or 12 years old, as far as I could tell, first they got sick, and then they would get retroactively diagnosed with some uh, indication, and then we would go and give them a therapy that reduced their suffering, but didn't really improve, didn't restore their health. And when I asked, like, why couldn't we anticipate what would make you sick beforehand? Why weren't we actually sort of rejuvenating you? The answers I got were things like, well, that's not how medicine works, and that may have been true back then, but even by the time I was you know, at Bridgewater, it wasn't really true anymore. We were developing sort of a toolkit that let us do medicine in a more regenerative, more restorative, and fundamentally more exciting way. And so all those things kind of motivated me to yeah. go into this space.
0: And how did you sort of navigate the idea maze around anything you could have done within biotech and why this was the, the problem and the, the opportunity you wanted to target? Right. Relative to any other ones.
1: Yeah, you know, part of it is a um, part of it is a personality thing. One thing that I really don't like is is waste. Yeah. And so, whenever I encounter a problem where there's something that's fundamentally valuable, like sort of you know bone marrow transplants save lives every day, and it's being discarded because we have thirty five thousand you know deceased donors who provide vital organs, solid organs, hearts, livers, lungs. They provide skin, corneas, all these things are routinely recovered, and bone marrow wasn't. Um, and we knew just from a handful of studies that had been done before in transplants that it was possible to recover bone marrow from a deceased donor and transplant it. The idea that we were just discarding that because there was nowhere to put it was, was completely unacceptable. And so um, pr- problems like that are of interest. Um, and then I guess, you know, the other part of it is just leverage, right? Because there's this interesting thing about the... That I think distinguishes this field, distinguishes sort of biomedical innovation from pretty much any other, um, which is that we are you have to every time you solve one problem, new problems emerge. Right. And so what I mean by that is that, like in the old days, most people died from infectious diseases. And if you cure an infectious disease, you might add 50 years to someone's life because they might have gotten it when they were a kid and they didn't. And not only that, you save the lives of all the other people they would have they would have infected. There's like a massive multiplier benefit. Today, most people don't die from infectious diseases, at least not in developed countries. For the most part, you get these degenerative diseases of aging. And it's like, even if we completely cured all cancers, you might add like three to five years to life expectancy, but people people get something else eventually. And so, if my goal is to figure out, okay, what can I do to most meaningfully improve health, like over time and improve like our health span, then finding an intervention that can improve your ability to fight disease, not just a disease, is is the route to take. And the immune system is this massively, like, sophisticated, um, intelligent, wit, biological, carbon-based information processing system that, um, you know, we all um, evolved. And finding ways to, like, take what we've learned about biology and just tweak that system to make it a little bit more powerful is, is, I think, by far the highest leverage way um, to improve health. And so that's that's the system I wanted to go after. And
0: is that the only idea you seriously explored or was there another idea, a space you almost consumed?
1: Oh, man. You know, um, so one thing that I spent a lot of time thinking about was just um, crowd preservation in general. So, of course, one of the things that Ossium awesome does is we take bone marrow and we keep it at, you know, these cryogenic temperatures. We, we store it in liquid nitrogen vapor. And so... Um, you know, the, the science of, of cryobiology and in particular, um, this idea of, of preservation, long term preservation of human cells and tissues, is, a, is an incredibly interesting one, right? Because, um, and I'll just, this is just one, maybe one random example. So, right now, if you test a therapeutic, for the most part, you do an animal study, and then if it doesn't seem to do too much damage to the mice and sort of seems to, you know um, have the desirable effect you want on treating the, d- the mice that have the disease you you know you try a trial in humans i'm grossly simplifying but roughly that's that's what how it works it will be and you know mice in some ways may be a good proxy for humans and in other ways they're a terrible proxy what would often be much better would be if you had actual human cells that were affected by whatever disease you were trying to treat that you just had off the shelf you could just take thaw and then apply your you know small molecule pharmaceutical too that would that could give you a, an awesome read um, maybe in many ways certainly complementary to the mouse and in a lot of ways much better but we don't have the ability to freeze and uh, and thaw human tissue in a way that gives you living useful cells after you would just get gush um, and so I think that kind of thing where you develop this ability to preserve and reanimate human cells that are still living and, and functional that that changes the way that you know that pharmaceutical and cellular therapy research is done entirely. You make every everyone's experiments are massively more efficient um, and so that that's also like in a category of things that I thought could be really powerful um, the The downside of that is that it's also like extremely indirect and it's not clear. It relies on a lot of other people really taking that tool and utilizing it in like an efficient way and not getting clogged right because everyone's trained to do all their mouse experiments and like, do you want to switch? That's not what you did yeah. in grad school for, you know, eight years or whatever. And so anyway, um, this I think um, was, was the right thing. But yeah, yeah. there's other ideas.
0: And well,
2: I think it's, <clears throat> I think that this is one of the things that's really exciting about Osium is that the first path to the, the go-to-market enabling stem cells used within uh, uh, immunotreatments for organ transplants. It's such a powerful idea, but then it leads to this bank of material which could be used obviously against leukemia lymphoma. It could be used also for all these other expanded use cases where the question might begin now in some PhD researcher's mind, like what if I had a whole bank of these same cells or same types of cells how could my treatment perform how could my treatment perform or what new experiment could I invent? Right. Well right now that just doesn't exist because there's no bank you can go to right. and do an ex- and do an experiment. So what the, the first instantiation is no small feat and a very exciting business and transformative idea and it opens up this whole new category of business, a business of of treatments of treatments it is so incredibly exciting. I got to think that's that's motivating not just to do the first thing but to say this is this is this is a life's mission. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that also shows up when you're recruiting as well.
1: It does. Absolutely. Um and and in fact, if there's anything that has been even more valuable to the company than I ever imagined or anticipated, it was the ability of being able to um put this Everyone who works with us and everyone who's considering working for us sort of wakes up every morning knowing that the work that they do, they are meaningfully advancing, like a set, a company, a set of capabilities and technologies and infrastructure that will save countless lives in the future. And everything they're doing is fighting towards making that goal real. And I can really feel and see that. And them just going above and beyond to, right. um, to deliver value. And yeah. Uh, yeah, that's been Im- immeasurably valuable. Yeah.
2: I, and, and improve people's lives. Kevin, I actually forgot. I didn't tell you this. My my brother-in-law just got a heart transplant uh, in November. And he's mm. living with us right okay. now. I mean, consuming $4,000 worth uh, monthly of immunosuppressive right. drugs. Because uh, that's, that's how that works. And uh, the fact that this technology treatment could be improving... His long-term outcome, right. his near-term outcome in terms of uh, personal health and happiness. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's so remarkable. Uh, I think about that now all the time, every time I see him, because he's living with us right now. Uh, and uh, I've got to say that, that that must be a huge guiding star. Totally, totally.
1: Um, and you know, I, I can't
2: believe I forgot to tell you that. I'm like, <laughs> sitting around, going, like, yeah. dude, why, why, why aren't we in market more? <laughs> we can yeah. help. We can help. We help my brother-in-law. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's incredible. Um, and you know, I, um, I, I had a. There's a couple people in my, in my family who've had, you know, organ transplants, and there's this thing where, look, I mean, you know, without question, the ability to take a solid organ from one human being and transplant it into another and have it function and save their life is one of the crowning achievements of medicine. And it's it's like almost, it's incredible and mind-blowing that we can do it. Um, But I think we often forget that like, yes, it saves the person's life, but like the quality of life afterwards is just dramatically, dramatically reduced. Um, And not only, you know, is just taking, you know, 15 or 20 pills a day, which in some cases is necessary, just incredibly taxing, but like just... The, the the infections and then the fact that in many cases they're ultimately rejected anyway. It just takes longer. And so I think um, if we can, there's a, a, there's a couple of people who um, have interesting histories in that they have had kidney transplants using traditional methods with immunosuppression and then happened to participate in clinical trials where they got a second kidney transplant um, with immune tolerance afterwards. And so they know what it's like to have lived the Post organ transplant with immunosuppression and without, and it, it's not in day. And I think, um, you know, there are, in a lot of ways, doing things like kidney and heart transplants better is like the first step. The really interesting thing is that there's all sorts of like things that we don't transplant today, like intestine transplants are very rare, um, limb transplants are very rare, because rejection is such a huge issue that it doesn't make that much sense. Once rejection is no longer on the table, like, transplantation itself, like we'll think of the human body and it's, the transportation will be a general tool that we use exponentially more. And that's really exciting.
0: Ross, let's let's double down a little bit. You led this investment on behalf of village global. What did you see, you know, besides of course, the special team and the founder, uh, what was sort of the market insight uh, as to why this was such a compelling investment for us?
2: Yeah. I think whenever we're doing stuff in healthcare, it's so often just an inspirational story to hear, and so this is obviously a prime example. But moreover, from a business perspective, I think there were two elements. The first was being able to build a durable, a durable and compounding asset in the banks. Um, so, not only is Ossium going to be a critical solution for when you do an organ transplant and addressing organ re- rejection, that's one use. The process of uh, Ossium creating its business makes a whole bank of bone marrow that can be used then not just for that transaction, excuse me, not just for that treatment, but for any treatment that would benefit from bone marrow. So the great example is there's not currently a bank that you can go query to find bone marrow for leukemia, lymphoma treatment. And so in fact, many people listening might've had this experience of, you know, a loved one gets that disease. You go in, you get tested, you know, maybe even you're part of the, um, treatment for that. They punch a bunch of holes in your hip. They pull out bone marrow, etc. One of the reasons it works that way is because there's no, there's no bank to go query. You can't just look up, you know, matches, you know, for, for Eric Tornberg, Ross Fubini. And, the existence of osseum awesome is gonna create this bank and that resource that you can go back to. So this is the example of like you want to fundamental solving a fundamentally you're you're creating a new fundamental health solution in organ transplant and the existence of that is creating the long-term defensible asset. And that's an exciting business. It also means you're not just going to transform organ transplants, you're gonna transform Many, 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 many other businesses and lives. It's also personally exciting because here at Village we don't do biopharma drugs, so we're not going to invent the next. I mean, you know, so we're not going to invent, invent, or it's unlikely that one of our companies will invent the next, you know, drug to treat uh, liver failure. Instead, we're looking for platforms where we can invest and we can be part of people building something to address many many diseases and so that was really exciting a necessary part of that is obviously the enthusiasm kevin has the expertise his team has about both being involved with clinical trials cryogenics and built and building out this business and he doesn't know that but that's evident in every single person you talk to it's you know deep expert in basically long-term, you know, cell storage. And they'll just walk you through how this is similar or different from blood plasma and the four other things that are ever stored. And so that, that confidence from, from a team is, is very, is very rare. Yeah.
0: How, do, uh, can, why don't you talk a little bit about go to market and how you thought about sort of the staging and sequencing of, of building out this company?
1: Yeah. Okay. So, you know, a general feature of, um, one thing in this field is that, um, in order to go to market, you need regulatory approval. And in general, the way the FDA and pretty much every regulatory agency worldwide works is that the less novel the thing you want to do is, the easier it is to get to market. Yeah. And so when we thought about our go to market strategy, we said, okay, well, let's think about all the things we can do with the Bone Marrow Bank once we have it. Um, the, the, The least novel thing we can do and the lowest barrier to entry thing is just using the bone marrow for the same thing bone marrow transplants have always been used for, which is treating blood cancer patients and just letting the source be this deceased donor with our process as opposed to a traditional living donor. We were able to get the FDA to give us a go ahead on that within sort of two years of starting the company, largely because all we had to do was show that the cells that we were recovering were as high quality and the process was as high quality as what was already being done for living donors. Once that was demonstrated, it was just a bone marrow transplant.
2: Actually, and this might be worth just for people understanding the core business because I think many people they think of transplants, they think of that kidney transplant right. they 're getting, or maybe even that example I gave for leukemia here. Right. Is real insight of capturing all of this material and storing it from deceased donors who might otherwise be give, be giving up one organ. Now because becomes to take all of that material and save it for future treatments.
1: Right, yeah. right. Um, so you know, there's about thirty five thousand um, deceased organ and tissue donors in the U.S. every year, and um, the average organ donor gives something like you know gives organs to something like three and a half different people. Um, bone marrow historically was not one of those. We figured out how to recover a bank and store that. And then to type it HLA to genetically type it so that we know whom it matches. And so, because we have that resource and that information, that means that, um, we could use the transplants for anything. And we thought about go to market strategy. We just said, okay, let's start with the thing that we're going to be able to get through FDA first. And that was the classic sort of, uh, leukemia, um, bone marrow transplant. And so, that's kind of um, phase one. Phase two is like, okay, what are the things that we can use the transplants for that are just like one step of innovation away from being ready, right? And the single most important of that, uh, one example of that is the one that Ross was, uh, mentioned earlier, immune tolerance, where someone is, is already getting an organ transplant, um, kidney, heart, lung, whatever it may be. And you pair that organ transplant with a bone marrow transplant in a way that re-educates their native immune system to recognize cells from their organ donor itself. If you do this, um, they don't have organ rejection, they don't need immunosuppression. So a lot of work in this press has already been done, in particular with kidneys, uh, with limbs, people are already walking around who've had transplants and paired with bone marrow transplants who either have no immunosuppression regime at all or a dramatically reduced one. And so in that case, um, all we need to do is show that you know, our process and our product, which is based on deceased donors instead of the, the, the traditional living donors that were used for the kidney jaundice trials, works. And that's important because like 80% of organs come from deceased donors. And so we're opening up the market to really enable this to be standard practice. Um, so that's kind of level two. But then there's lots of other things that are much more radical um, that will take. Uh, that are more groundbreaking in terms of the medical innovation and that instead of being, you know, we already have approval or we'll have approval in, you know, three to five years, um, you're more like your traditional biotech seven to ten year place. Um, And those are all incredibly exciting.
2: What's really interesting to me hearing your explanation is how the constants around ASEM and its innovation are to other remarkable early stage companies that we've been lucky enough to get involved with. One, that there's a real regulatory hurdle, like embracing Mm -hmm. complexity, Number two is that you're really just getting close to your customer, the customer in this case being the first people to do clinical trials, being the first people to go and do a leukemia transplant and sort of building up to more more complexity. And then the third, which maybe I know a little bit more than the rest of the audience does, is there's actually innovation that's going on in how you're doing storage and management of those cells and capturing those sells efficiently out of people's deceased bodies. And you've had to do a ton of invention there. It's a, you know, those constants of like, it's defensible. We're actually close to our customer and learning at every step. And then under the covers, a huge amount of innovation. It's actually going along. It's in some ways, the it's a different outcome than someone building the next version of NetSuite or SAP. But it's very similar in terms of like, the company building process that you've that you've gone through, no.
0: yeah. And can you unpack a little bit, like how does this become an enormous company? What 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 could you know, Osmium awesome at its peak look like?
1: Well, so there are, um, so there are about thirty thirty to thirty five thousand organ transplants in the U.S. every year. We'd like to see all of those as as close as possible to all of those paired with the bone marrow transplant so that it's just standard. When you think about an organ transplant, the bone marrow just comes with it. Um, And so that, that whole field has changed also then it's hard to estimate, but there are, there's probably um, there's going to be some multiplier on that number of transplants. Once it becomes, once it becomes feasible to transplant more intestines and limbs and all sorts of things that are really immunoreactive. Um, and then, on the hematologic applications, which just means trying to treat people with blood cancers there 's about you know eight to ten thousand people again, this is just in the u s who search for a donor and don 't find one every year and so they either use uh, an inferior therapy like a core blood transplant or they just they just die yeah. so we think you know we 'd like to see two thirds of those people be able to find a a match through our bank, um, but even that. So that's even if we stop there that's that's pretty huge. you're talking about like forty thousand ish lives per year being saved or dramatically improve, improved but I think um I think the real set of possibilities is actually orders of magnitude larger than that before even going international and I say that because one of the things that we're really doing is we're not just building a bank of cells we're building a massive um, bank of information right like yeah. this volume of data, both from the donors into the bank, the patients who ultimately receive the bone marrow, the experiments that we do and the treatments that we do on the bone marrow once we have it. We're sort of accumulating this wealth of information that's unlike anything that's existed before. And I think the combination of all of that biological information and just the dramatic improvements in our ability to analyze and interpret that data sort of algorithmically that are going on now are going to be married to really unlock um, powerful new therapies. And I think a lot of those therapies are going to come from doing gene therapy or genetic engineering um, on the cells. Um, And so this is um, one thing that's really hot in biotech generally and in the news now are these um, immunotherapies, right? And in those immunotherapies, generally, you'll do – the genetic engineering is actually done sort of downstream on things like T and B cells that are like uh, typically T cells which are, um, they're like differentiated lymphocytes that actually move through the bloodstream and do things. The bone marrow bank is full of stem cells. It's the cells that actually make the T cells and a bunch of other things. And so if you do genetic engineering on them, it has effects that you flow downstream into the whole, into your entire blood and immune system. And so one thing that's um, very interesting is that like the, in theory, there's all sorts of indications that you could treat this way Um, if you, were to modify those stem cells before transplanting them, we have limited knowledge of what that solution space looks like for the most part because we're still not that good at interpreting the, the, the genome and going all the way from those interpretations to understanding what interventions you need to make to have specific um, sort of consequences. But our ability to do that is getting better all the time. Um, and so, anyway, there's kind of this like it's, it's as if there's this incredible sort of treasure trove that we're building and we know a little bit about how to use it but like with each year our understanding of what's possible with it is only going to increase and yeah.
0: Yeah. What, what advice do you have? You mentioned your approach to the FDA which is, you know, build something as sort of uh, easy as possible for it to get to go through. What, what other advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are building in this space who are, you know, um, or what uh, roadblocks. Can you save people from from not going? Let me rephrase. Sorry. What advice do you have for entrepreneurs who are seeking regulatory approval? Um, what are the most common um, mistakes yeah. you see people make? So I think
1: um, engaging very proactively with the agency, like even before you, you know, when you're in the phase of designing your experiments. If you think about it, like you want your initial assays and your initial animal studies to be done. With the idea in mind of like what your clinical trial will look like and what your therapeutic and your go to market looks like. And so you actually need to begin at the end and say like, okay, when this is like an approved, you know, drug and it's being used by thousands or millions of people, um, what does that look like? And then let me back all the way from there to like the experiments I need to do tomorrow. You put together that, that concept. And then you think, okay, let me go and, you know, let me write to the FDA, let me reach out to them, let them know like what, you know, the first several steps in that are and let's see what they think. And I think that has two advantages. The obvious one is that like, maybe you're wrong about what you need to do to get regulatory approval and they'll tell you, uh, which is helpful. But also there's a thing around there. It's people that are, that are there operating it. And the fact that you proactively consulted them, asked for their guidance, Told them what you wanted to do, gives them comfort that you are sort of a good operator, right? And if that is the case, then they're just they're they I don't. The FDA is never, you know, I would never say they're nice particularly to anyone. But I think you can minimize, you can maximize their comfort with you by being proactive.
2: I mean, there's probably two things. Number one, like let's never forget that the the advantage of the FDA being tough on everyone. <laughs> yeah. Is that, you know, drugs, for the most part, work and work as described. Yes, so, yes. you know, in some ways, you know, God bless the FDA, uh, challenging they, they might be. It's funny also how common it is with regulatory groups, which is, you know, showing up is 90% of it. and yeah. showing up at the beginning and saying, I'm thinking about this uh, and building that relationship. I think it gets lost maybe just because people always think about, I don't know, they they always think about the, the FDA. They always think about the label, not about like... Sarah, the person sitting there taking the phone call, trying to, you know, a- answer the que- you know right. answer the question or help validate the therapy or whatnot. So, right. I think that that's such a concept. We see it in the fintech side. We see it in the healthcare yeah. side. You know, th- the best thing you can do is just start the conversation early. Right. 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 Totally.
1: Um, another thing that we found helpful is um, identifying national security applications of your work, if they, if any exist. So. There's, you know, kind of a sense that if you are developing something, not just that can help an individual who happens to be sick, but that can actually make like the, the population of hundreds of millions of people fundamentally safer, um, that can create um, very meaningful. One, you can, you can get grants to do a lot of that work that are great. Um, there's government contracts for a lot of that, that that are great, but also it creates a sense of, of goodwill. And there's actually sp- specifically people within the FDA who go about – doing regulatory review for sort of national security-related projects. Um, And a lot of the technologies, like we immediately think about standard clinical commercial applications. I mean, that's what we did at first. But oftentimes there is something bigger that you can do.
2: Kevin, can you talk about some of the different ways that you went and sought uh, funding for the the company from different grants and non-dilutive assets?
1: Yeah, totally, totally.
2: Um, As as much as you you want to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, one thing about getting, you know, federal government grants is that they're they're public. And so, you know, the ones that we've had for, you know, more than a few months are are basically online. Um, So... Our um, there's a program um, SBIR Small Business Innovation Research Program that um, basically most of the government agencies that do any work that connects to science in any way, whether it's the NIH or the Department of Energy or NASA, whatever they all they do these grants where they award funding to companies operating in the United States that are doing um, that are doing work that in some way relates to like the agency's goal or mission. Small businesses, and so we have you know we've we have had a lot of of sort of success in you know winning grants um, to fund a lot of our basic research and that's really um that's been great in that the the government agencies contain a lot of you know brilliant like scientists who see a lot of proposals and understand what our national priorities are and what the needs are and actually can be great kind of advisors to you in kind of b- building this thing out in a way that you know, other advisors are are, are not, and then also um, it's a valuable source of non dilutive funding. So um, we basically for every project that we want to do that's like that we think meaningfully advances um, meaningfully advances the, the science or our understanding of the sort of bioengineering, and somewhere we'll apply for a grant for. Um, and we've I think it's we've won something like five now um and and maybe six soon um cool yeah
0: uh and what other advice do you have as someone who uh didn't come from the biotech world entered it like how did you recruit an excellent team of of experts what what advice would you give to non-biotech people who are building a biotech company
1: yeah so the number one thing you can do is find um a find an amazing uh, co-founder um and so my co-founder and chief science officer, um, Eric Woods, um, is sort of a, a gifted scientist and founder. He's actually a serial entrepreneur, um, who, you know, is among people in the world with an understanding of the relevant crowd biology is has one of is is one of the very top. And so um that, you know, that's incredibly powerful. Um and then the other thing I would say is that like you really have to not only is there like a, a a huge amount of existing information to sort of absorb it's a field that's rapidly changing like every month every day like there's these new papers coming out there's new insights and so you really just kind of have to adopt this sort of hunger for for the sort of practice of learning and I, you should almost think about like the way people wake up and they go to the gym every day or like four times a week and they spend like 45 minutes or an hour you should sort of do that with like reading PubMed it's just like a routine just sort of yeah. part of your day and if you can if you do that every day then like you know it starts to be become part of you yeah
2: I, lo- I love that term, practice of learning. Okay, that's a really good one. Um, h- how important have it building advisory groups, or folks that are outside the company but highly expert what you're doing? Yeah. And how have you gotten value out of those?
1: So, so that's been invaluable. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ross, because one of the things that I've been really pleasantly surprised by is how incredibly easy it is actually to get leading thinkers, especially in academia. Um, to work with you if you understand, if you approach them the right way. Because if you think about it, professors are in the business of doing science. They try to unlock you know, information about nature and improve our understanding of it. They are not in the business of commercializing those insights once they're developed and published. But if you had discovered, if you had some insight that could result in some therapy that would save lives and you weren't equipped to go and actually build the therapy, wouldn't what could make you happier than someone taking your idea and building it into something that actually exists and operates in the world and function like that's incredibly valuable. And you know, there's really only a couple of possibilities either it works in which case lots of lives are saved because of your work and you have some kind of upside because you develop that underlying technology and for your career, et cetera, or it doesn't work in which case, well, you weren't going to do it anyway. You don't, right. (laughs) And so like, what's why not? And so, um, you know, I think if you can, the, the set of people who are both capable of sort of processing like understanding a lot of the um a lot of the of so the medical the medical and the, uh, the biomedical literature that gets published and able to see the, the business models and the opportunities that arise from those the set of people who can understand both of those things well actually isn't that big and so if you can build yourself into one of those people then there's just kind of like unlimited sets of opportunities out there for things to go commercialize and like You can get professors to to cooperate with you.
0: Cool. Uh, What learning did you have at Bridgewater that you now take to running your company? Yeah.
1: Wow. Um, So one of the things – so at Bridgewater, culture itself is just fundamentally more important than it is at other institutions. It's not just this thing that you say like, oh, you know, we have a great company culture. Like it is – it is it, it wasn't just a part of who we were it was it was also part of what we did like part of your job was sort of maintaining building and internalizing the culture just as much as investing was part of my job and so you um you learn a lot about the impact that culture can have on an organization you learn a lot about how much human beings can be molded because no one walks through the door um you know steeped in you know Bridgewater's uh, perspective um, they everyone sort of learns that when they get there, and um, I also think that um, just maybe even stepping back another level, most hedge funds are kind of these small shops that may have one or two key people in the leadership who have insights into markets and they operate for you know maybe a few years. And they don't feel like institutions about much. Bridgewater is different. Bridgewater's been around for like forty years, had like I don't know fifteen, sixteen, seventeen hundred employees, um, and all of our time was spent like building systems and trying to find ways to understand. You know, the term we used was timeless and universal characteristics of markets and codify those. And I think, I guess, the biggest thing I learned coming in, coming out of Bridgewater was like. How do you build an institution that lasts? In and what, what role does culture play in that? And even if the specifics of the culture that I try to create at Ossium are very different from what Bridgewater's were, I think the meta lessons about how important culture is have definitely taken with me. Cool.
2: I think that that's um, such a righteous comment, and it's something that's it's so hard for folks to understand who haven't been part of either Bridgewater or company cultures that, Companies that have really won because of their culture. Even, you know, I think of Google is a company that's won in part yeah. of its inventive culture. I think of you know, Palantir is a company that's won in part because of its culture. And it's such a it's such a hard thing to see until yeah. you're running that big organization and then maybe it's not functioning how you want. Right. Getting it in early. I wonder if that's why we've got a number of entrepreneurs that are all brudge. Bridgewater alumni, and I, w- I wonder if that's part of it—like just the uh, the comfort in paying attention to culture and people so early on.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. Most, most most people just don't get that because they haven't they haven't seen it weaponized. They haven't seen that right. become like a huge benefit in a com- compounding feature. So yeah, yeah, yeah it's gonna be nice to see as, as Osseum scales up and how that performs as you see all that how that culture setting has changed. Uh, the different people that you brought on with the, the Osseum form looks like. <laughs>
0: Oh. Totally. Yeah. Uh, so I'm trying to keep these episodes to 40 minutes. We're like 45 minutes. But, um, so this is a good length. But is there anything else we didn't mention that is important to mention? Um,
1: yeah. Okay. Thank you guys. Yeah. For, no, I yeah. Cover a lot. Setting this up.
0: Awesome. Um, Kevin, uh, Ross, thank you. This has been a fantastic episode. Uh, Kevin, for people who are interested in learning more, potentially want to uh, work at OSCEM or, or learn more about opportunities they're in. Where, where can they learn more about uh, you, Osium, and, and what to expect in the future?
1: So check out OsiumHealth.com. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> There's um, information about the company, the mission, the team, and also uh, job opportunities are posted there. Um, and then um, we do, you know, go to a number of, of conferences. We go to uh, conferences in sort of bone marrow transplant and um, in organ transplant, which I'm sure all the cool kids I yeah. listen go to those all the time. Totally. Um, <laughs> <laughs>
2: Just look, look, look us up when you stop you know, Stop by the conference for the big booth. Exactly. In the exactly. Front.
0: <laughs> totally. Awesome. Cool. Thank you so much. It's been a great episode. Thank you. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash catalyst.